Okay, so our last speaker for the year is Jen Edmonds. Um, Jen has been married for 19 years and is a mom of two teenage boys. She's a nurse by day and a women's small group leader by night. So without further ado, let's welcome Jen as she discusses coming back, life after anxiety and depression. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> I'm moving this bell because I'll knock it off. So. <laughs> um, good morning, everyone. Um, it's really great to be with all of you. Um, this is actually my first time at MOPS. Um, it would be a lot more enjoyable if one of you were up here speaking, um, but here we are. So. <laughs> um, I'm a wife and a mom, like Danny said. Um, I was even a mom of preschoolers once upon a time. Um, you can see my little fellows right here. Um, this is definitely the before picture. Um, these days, um, things look a little different at my house. This is my handsome husband. This is my Jacob, um, the man of my dreams. And these little boys are my, my sons, Simon, who's 17, and Ben, who's almost 15. Um, man, times change. <laughs> um, I have known many, many women who have had the privilege of being MOPS speakers over the years. Um, on all sorts of topics, all sorts of themes, all sorts of talents and hobbies. Um, but I want to confess to you that I never thought that I would be on this side of the microphone. Um, and I never thought that it would be about this topic. Uh, you see, I was asked to come and talk to you today about anxiety and depression. Um, and I would really prefer to trade topics now. <laughs> um, I would also like to tell you that what I learned about anxiety and depression, I learned from my nursing books back in nursing school, but that's not true. What I know about anxiety and depression, I learned from my very own personal struggle with anxiety and depression. It's not real glamorous, but that's the truth. Uh, I'd like to try and accomplish a few things with you today. Um, first, I'd like to open up and get really honest and let you all kind of step back with me into those dark old days. Um, I'd also like to talk with you about some of the lessons that God taught me during that time and a few of the secrets that I learned. Um, for me, the struggle with anxiety and depression started with postpartum depression. Uh, postpartum depression is about a lot of things, um, hormone changes, adjusting to motherhood, all the pressure we put on ourselves, all the pressure the world puts on us, exhaustion, lack of sleep, no surprise there, right? Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is that postpartum depression can start anywhere from when that little baby comes home from the hospital all the way up to their third or fourth birthday. Um, it can hit hard and it can come out of the blue. Before we dive into my story, I'd like to challenge you with just a quick quiz. I've got a few faces up here on the screen. Can you tell me which one of these ladies is struggling with anxiety or depression? Kind of hard to tell, right? When I think about anxiety and depression, Depression is just overwhelming sadness, and anxiety is just intense fear. Um, we can 
dress it up, make it sound all technical, but really it's not. It's, it's that simple. Um, and we, especially as women, are really, really good at hiding it, um, at making everything look okay. Um, when I think about the face of anxiety and depression, I actually don't think about that troubled face. I think about this face. Because this face is the face we put on. We all choose a face that we think we need to get us through the day, and that's the one we wear. Um, a lot like the emojis that we put on our phones. Sometimes we might have a special face for date night with our hubby or a work face, or a church face. Sometimes we're struggling. But then there's the face we wear at home when we think no one else is looking. But can I tell you a secret about wearing masks? It can get really, really hard to stop. Now for the hard part, my story. Jake and I were four or five years into our marriage. We owned a home, as you saw. We had a toddler and a baby. I was working part-time as a floor nurse and a nursing instructor. And I began to notice that my emotions were becoming increasingly erratic and unpredictable. I was exhausted, but not sleeping. I was constantly tense. My emotions ranged anywhere from a strange sort of numbness to a sort of emotional explosion. When I wasn't angry or crying, um, I spent my days sort of like a robot, um, staring blindly out the window, laying on the couch, watching my boys play in the living room floor, pretty well checked out. Um, I did the work of keeping my boys safe and of um, feeding them and of taking care of the household things, but I did it mechanically. I was desperately lonely, even in a room full of people. And I forgot how to laugh. I learned really quickly how to hide in plain sight. I felt both trapped by my life and failing at the life that I wanted. So what life did I want? I wanted to honor the Lord. I wanted to be a really amazing mama bear. I wanted to have the kind of marriage that brightens a room. I wanted to be a great friend. I wanted to be a confident and competent nurse. That was what I wanted, but that is not where I was living at that time. There's a family picture here. And for me, this is a picture of anxiety and depression. When I look at this picture, I always think of a shadow. And I'm the shadow. I was there, I was present, I had pasted a smile on my face for the occasion, um, but the darkness in my heart and mind were already winning at this point. Um, I was more shadow than woman at this point. The really frightening part, this picture was taken on Easter Sunday. At home, when nobody was looking, I was more robot than woman. Um, I felt nothing, I cared about nothing, I desired nothing, I thought I was achieving nothing. Um, when I was in public, I was poised and plastic. Um, I was in control of the situation, but I was getting harder and colder on the inside. 
Um, the sadness and eventually the fear started winning. Um, when Jake came home, the temperature would rise on my emotions because he forced me to feel something. Um, I became weepier, angrier, more anxious, more insecure, and I had to get better and better at hiding it and masking it. Um, it all combined to produce sort of the perfect place for my own sinful ideas and my own sinful attitudes to, to kind of thrive and grow. That brings me to the first important point, an important lesson that God taught me during that season. Sin loves dark, silent, and hidden places. Yeah, there were real physical and emotional reasons for my anxiety and depression. And yeah, there were real physical and emotional reasons uh, for the way my life was going at that season. But there were also real spiritual and emotional reasons for my anxiety too. Um, the spiritual choices I was making, the spiritual life I was living at that time was doing me a lot of harm. Um, and it was allowing that, those sinful attitudes and those thoughts to take root in my heart and in my mind. I let the sadness deepen into despair. I let the fear um, escalate into doubt. I let myself question the goodness of God. I chose anger all the time. And that deep anger settled way down into bitterness. And it left some pretty deep marks. I was living in a place day in and day out where I just sort of gave up. And I stopped trusting. Did God create me and choose me and redeem me for despair and doubt and bitterness? Of course not. But there in the darkness and the silence, I let myself stop hanging on to him. I chose the darkness, and the darkness started winning. I want to pause right here and tell you the second important lesson I learned during that season. Satan is a liar. He wants us to fail. He wants us to be sad and afraid. And he wants that sadness and fear to sink down deep. He wants to make us question God and his goodness. And in that season, Satan didn't have much trouble convincing me that life would always be this way. That I was just defective, broken. That my anger and my lack of motivation were ruining everything. That I was doing more harm than good to, my, to Jake and to my boys. And finally, the biggest lie of all, that they would all be better off without me. I'm a Christian, girls. Um, I love Jesus Christ. And even then, in those days, I was trying desperately to pray and to hang out in my Bible and to learn. But I was also listening to a bunch of lies. And those lies got louder and louder and louder. And eventually, I began to believe them. That brings me to important lesson number three. My own attitudes and emotions lie too. I cannot trust how I feel. At my lowest season, I did something that I never believed I was capable of. I packed a bag. This bag. Things in my heart and mind were so ugly 
so broken. I had started my marriage as a calm, cool, collected, confident Christian woman. I had dreams. Jake and I were going places. And now, here at the bottom of the barrel, um, sin had twisted my heart and mind so much that I honestly believed that it was time for me to go away, to disappear. You have to understand something about me. I love my husband more than the breath in my lungs. And I would lay down my life for him and for my boys in a moment's notice, just like any of you would. I wasn't running away. And I definitely wasn't wanting out of my marriage. Jake is my heart. But those lies had led me to believe that leaving was the only way to free them from the burden that I had become. Satan is really good at lying. Do you know what I packed in my going away bag? One pair of pajamas and a toothbrush. How long do you think I intended to survive once I took that path? I didn't realize it then, but I know now, without a doubt, that that bag was my suicide bag. If God had allowed me to turn left instead of right on my way home from work one day, I was never coming back. I would have been dead before another day ended. That bag was in the trunk of my car for a couple of the lowest months of my life. Well, you might have noticed that I'm still alive. I think it's kind of a requirement for mop speakers. Um, but um, So clearly, that bag was not the end of my story. Um, since that time, I've actually worked pretty hard to redeem that awful bag. Um, I took it on a girl's getaway. I used it for a vacation in the mountains. Um, currently, it's my gym bag, because, um, you know, you got to try. <laughs> um, but that brings me to the only really important part of this story. How does a suicide bag turn into a gym bag? More importantly, how does a suicide girl turn into a mop speaker? That's the most important lesson of all. God and his word are the only source of truth that we can hold on to. And I can stand here and tell you that it's the only source of truth that held on to me. If you hear nothing else I say today, please hear me when I say that God in heaven sees us and he knows us and he cares about our struggle and our pain. He cares so much that he sent Jesus down into this mess with us to live and to die for us, to redeem us. And he inspired this Bible and every truth in it to light our path. I ran across a really great example of this way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 16, I found my buddy Hagar. Hagar was a slave to a powerful family. She was pregnant with her master's child and her mistress had cast her out. She was utterly alone in the world and so desperately sad and afraid. As she hid in the wilderness, probably preparing to die, God came to her to talk to her and to help her. 
Hagar was a nobody. She wasn't powerful or important, and in that specific moment, she was a complete mess. But Genesis 16:13 gives us a hint into what God did for her. Verse 13 says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. You want to know a secret about sufferers of anxiety and depression? Sometimes we feel invisible, unseen, misunderstood, unloved. But I'm standing here today because just like Hagar, God saw me and he knew me. And he used his word to light a path for my stumbling feet. Because of God's grace, I never made that wrong turn. Yeah, I was hopeless and helpless, and I was definitely a complete mess. Uh, but God didn't let me go. My sweet husband didn't know about that bag at the time. But he knew I was struggling. My family didn't know. But God used Jake's strength and his patience and his prayers in really powerful ways in my recovery process. Jake was actually the one who finally encouraged me to call that darkness what it was and to ask for help. I would love to be able to tell you that my battle with anxiety and depression ended that very day. It didn't. Um, the battle up out of that hole is long and hard and heavy, uh, but God is faithful. Medication helped me to stop that downward spiral, and I slowly began to be able to think rationally again. Prayer and Bible study began to feel important again. Holding my children began to feel important again. The will to try began to grow. The numbness began to fade. I even learned how to laugh again. I remember one night Jake and I had curled up on the couch to watch a movie after the kids had gone to bed for the night. It was a comedy, and I found it funny, and I laughed, and I laughed, and I laughed. About halfway through the movie, I glanced over at my beautiful husband to see him staring at me with tears rolling down his face. He hadn't heard me laugh in about a year. That brings me to important lesson number five. There is life after anxiety and depression. The battle is hard, yeah, but it's also good. We can partner with God to fight back. Oddly enough, I've learned to think of my own anxiety and depression as a big, ugly octopus. An octopus may not seem like the scariest animal in the ocean. No big teeth, no powerful fins. The real problem with an octopus is its ability to come at you from so many different angles. It's not just one enemy, it's eight, right? In those dark days, I wasn't strong enough for one enemy, let alone eight. But God saw me and he pursued me and he helped me and he led me back toward the changes I need to make in my heart and my mind and my body. For me, my depression and anxiety always felt like a cage, like I was sort of trapped, um, closed in, claustrophobic. 
Early on in my recovery, I found a couple of verses in my Bible that encouraged me so much. The first hangs on my wall at home. Psalm 31.8 says, For you have not given me over to the hand of my enemy, but you have set my feet in a spacious place. For me, the idea that God could set my feet in a spacious place felt like oxygen in my lungs, like I had room to breathe. And then a little while later, I ran across a verse in 2 Samuel that's kind of the bookend to that spacious place verse. 2 Samuel 22.20 says, He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. What? He rescued me because he delighted in me. I was already a Christian. I already knew that God loved me. I already knew that my sins were forgiven. But until I hit rock bottom and looked up into the beautiful face of Jesus, I honestly never realized that God cared about my sadness and my fear and that awful trapped feeling. I never realized that the God of heaven delighted in me. And so that is why I agreed to come and talk to you today. I don't like telling the ugly parts of this story. But those ugly parts are necessary so that you can believe me when I tell you there is hope. Knowing that God is near and that he delights to rescue me, I've walked forward in recovery and in growth. He and his word have showed me lots of ways to start fighting back against that sadness and fear. Over the years, I've found eight tools that I use almost every day to fight that ugly octopus of anxiety and depression. I think of them as tentacles. The first step in the fight against is accepting the fact that depression and anxiety are toxic. It's super important that we face this fact. This kind of sadness and fear are poisonous. In our hearts, in our minds, in our day-to-day lives, it's not something we can ignore. Anxiety and depression will creep into everything we do. We can't just stand around and wait for it to go away. If we don't fight it, it's going to make us sick. Spiritually, emotionally, even physically, it's dangerous. Next, we have to decide, what are we going to fill our minds with? Lies or truth? What we believe drives everything. It drives what we say. It drives what we do. So what are we believing? Lies or truth? Remember, God and his word are the only real source of truth. And so I've tried to make it a practice to dig deep into the Bible, to study the Bible with other people, to keep that truth up close and right in front of my face so that I can't ignore it. Our doubts and anger and fear can run pretty deep. 
and they affect every relationship we have. For a lot of us, there's a whole big world full of people out there that can be pretty hard for us to trust. Trusting God makes some sense, right? God's perfect. He loves us. He never changes. He never fails. But people are completely opposite. People aren't perfect. They aren't always loving. People change all the time. And people fail. As we fight our battle with anxiety and depression, it might not be realistic to think that we'll just suddenly start trusting everybody and opening up to everybody. But one of the most dangerous and damaging parts of anxiety and depression is it's how it isolates us and convinces us to keep it all to ourselves. We were not created to do life alone. We may not be able to trust everybody, but part of fighting this enemy means that we learn to trust somebody. For me, that somebody came in the form of a couple of Christian friends who used, God used to hold my hand and to remind my feet how to take those baby steps of trust. I'm very fortunate because they're both here today. God designed us to learn from each other. Maybe we learn a little more love from someone who's loving. Maybe we learn a little more joy from someone who's joyful or a little more strength from someone who's super strong. Do you see the picture? Maybe God made us need each other because we're stronger together. But trust requires us to share something, doesn't it? So the next step is all about learning how to be transparent. Things that are transparent are clear. They're easy to see through, like air, water, glass. The kind of transparency we're aiming for is the kind that allows us to get real, to share our thoughts and our feelings openly and honestly, to be our real selves right in front of other people, <clears throat> to stop hiding. Like I said before, it's pretty common for people who struggle with anxiety and depression to get really, really good at hiding. We don't like for other people to know that we're struggling we don't want them to know we're afraid or sad or thinking dark thoughts. We slap a smile on our face, especially when we don't feel like it. We laugh louder and we try to convince everyone that we're just fine. But we're not always fine. Sometimes we're hurting or lonely or afraid or struggling or angry or caught up in sin, or discouraged, or thinking dark and dangerous thoughts. And we work so hard to keep it all stuffed down and quiet so that nobody knows. We hide it from our spouses, we hide it from our friends, and we even try to hide it from God. But hiding will never satisfy our hearts. And hiding will never make us more like Jesus and hiding from God isn't going to work. Remember, he's the one who sees us. We have to make choices. We have to choose to share our thoughts and our ideas and our fears. We have to choose to open up even when we're afraid. Choose to open up to each other. Choose to open up to God. The decision to stop hiding can be a, a tough one. 
Our minds will very often tell us to run, to hide, to give up. That's where tenacity comes in. Tenacity is just a fancy word that means that we make a decision and we walk toward that goal no matter what. No matter what it costs, no matter how dangerous it feels, no matter how frightening. God gives a really specific definition in Joshua 1.9. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. What God is describing there is tenacity. He's telling Joshua to go, to obey, no matter what. To choose courage and action instead of fear. Satan never wants us to obey God. The world around us doesn't want us obeying God. And a lot of days our own hearts don't want us obeying God. But if we're going to move forward in this battle with anxiety and depression, then we're going to have to choose strength and courage, just like Joshua. Choosing courage is hard. If you happen to be sitting here today in the middle of your own personal crisis with depression or anxiety, there's a sheet on your table, it's called 911. These are just some of the questions and the tricks that I use to rein in the fear when it threatens to take over. You might find it useful. This idea of tenacity is about moving forward, walking one step at a time, whether you're afraid or not, whether you're sad or not. It's about facing the fear head on out of reverence for God. And as we do, we learn more about who God is how powerful he is, how much he loves us, how he created us, how he's our good father, and how he's greater, greater than you, greater than me, greater than our emotions, greater than the sin, and definitely greater than this battle. And only he balances his power with love and forgiveness. So we have to deal with a big question. Why serve sadness and fear when we can serve a God who delights in us? I challenge you to think it over and to answer honestly. Another reason this whole octopus analogy works well to describe anxiety and depression is the way anxiety and depression attack. It usually comes at us with no warning at all, from all different directions. It's tricky. The specific situations that cause us um, to dive into those anxious and depressed thoughts are called triggers. Learning what triggers our anxiety or our sadness is a really important part of learning how to fight back. The better we get at spotting the trigger, the better we get at the battle. Quickly recognizing a trigger gives you a time to make a decision. Am I gonna run away? Am I gonna put up a fight? 
Am I going to ask for help? It might give you that split second to pray and to ask God to help you. It might give you just a moment to send a text to a Christian friend asking for help. It might give you time to talk to your spouse, to make a plan, to dive into your Bible, or just to blast some Christian music. The more triggers you see coming, the more time you have to prepare. In the midst of all the fighting, there may be times when our ability to fight back just isn't good enough. You might reach a point, like I did, where you've tried to fight, but the anxiety and depression is still winning. It might be time to ask for a doctor's help. There are two basic medical options to help with treat anxiety and depression. Counseling and medication. Let's be honest. Sometimes we feel ashamed about needing to ask for help. We feel embarrassed. It makes us feel completely crazy. But the truth is, a lot of people get treated for anxiety and depression. A lot of people in our culture, in our families, at work, and right here at church. And we're all keeping it way too quiet. We're trying to hide it, and it's hurting us. We try to treat physical problems differently than we, than we treat mental ones, don't we? If a person has diabetes, or high blood pressure, or even cancer, we go to the doctor. We take medicine. These are physical problems. <clears throat> but often, because of the embarrassment, a person with anxiety or depression will not go to the doctor. They avoid taking medicine. They won't even consider counseling. We try to hide the mental problem because hiding it feels safe. But this is when our knowledge of toxicity and truth and trust and transparency and tenacity really come into play. Are we going to run and hide in fear? Or are we going to walk forward into the fight? There are a couple of important truths to understand here when we talk about seeking treatment for anxiety and depression. First, counseling can be a great resource to help you organize your thoughts, to understand your specific issues, and to get you off on the right track. But remember, the first and most important weapon we have is truth. So if the counseling being offered to you does not match up with God's word, then it was never good counsel. Truth is truth. It doesn't change. In a lot of cases, our best source of good godly counsel can come right here in our local churches. Maybe it's an older Christian woman who knows about this battle. Maybe it's a pastor or a Sunday school teacher who has a little experience with counseling. Maybe it's a Christian counselor out in the community. Maybe it's a Christian friend or mentor who can hold you accountable. The second thing we need to realize is we need to have a realistic understanding of what medications can do for us. There is no medication on earth that can truly heal what is broken in a human heart and mind. There's no shame or fault in using medication to fight anxiety and depression. But remember, medicine is only one tool. We still have seven other tentacles to fight. 
You may not need meds or formal counseling now. You may never need them. But when you're fighting anxiety and depression, it's always good to know what your options are. Finally, we get to tentacle number eight, trying again. One huge lesson we all learn as we practice fighting this anxiety and depression is that you win some and you lose some. It's gonna go really well some days. You're gonna feel better and stronger, more courageous some days. You're gonna be encouraged by your success some days. You're gonna win some days. And some days you won't. Some days, the old fears send us running like scared little rabbits. We hide instead of fight back. To crawl into bed and pull the blanket up over our head. To cry. And yeah, some days we're gonna feel completely crazy, discouraged, angry, and fed up with the whole mess. And that's when our battle really begins, the battle to try again and again and again. And on those days when nothing goes right, I want you to remember something. You are not alone. Psalm 9 says, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, Lord, for you have never forsaken those who seek you. Our struggle is not pointless. None of it is wasted. God can use every single piece of that struggle we face, and he's not leaving. He stands right there with us in the struggle. The more we learn to hold on to him, the more we'll learn to fight and to try again, and the more we'll grow. I am standing here today as living proof of Psalm 9. The Lord was and is my refuge. He guarded me and he carried me through every trouble and just like Hagar, I know his name. He is the God who sees me. I'd like you to walk out of here today with hope. Your heart and mind may tell you lots of things, some good, some bad, some ugly. <laughs> But I'd like you to walk out of here with some truth. God sees you. God knows all about your struggle. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to your rescue because he delights in you. Thank you for hearing my part of the story today, and I hope it gives you the courage to share yours. I hope you trust me when I tell you that through Jesus, beauty can rise up out of the ashes of anxiety and depression. Suicide bags can turn into carry-on luggage, and broken girls can become mop speakers.